Welcome to Waterstone Church. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are excited for the path ahead of us and what God has called us to in 2021. Our mission is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. As we begin the new year, we'll explore what this mission statement means to us and what part we can play in God's story. If you'd like to visit and attend in person, we'd love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Reading from God's Word, Matthew 13, Jesus Storybook Style. One day, Jesus was telling people about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is wherever God is king. It's wherever God is in charge. It's where he fills your heart up with his forever happiness, and you stop running away from him, and you love him. But sometimes people couldn't understand things very well, so Jesus helped them by telling them stories called parables. Jesus said, God's kingdom, it's like a hidden treasure. And he told them this story. Once upon a time, there was a man working in a field, digging. So there he is, digging. But what he doesn't know is that in that field, there is buried treasure. So dig, 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 clink, clink, clunk, ho, ho. His shovel bumps into something hard. Hello, what's this? He picks it up, dusts it off. It's chest. He, it's rusted and it's locked, but creak, he pries it open and what's inside takes his breath away. Beautiful, glittering, gleaming, twinkling, sparkling, precious jewels. It's a treasure chest. He wants that treasure. He needs to get that treasure. He must have that treasure somehow even if he has to sell everything he has so he can pay for it. He quickly buries the treasure again, runs home, sells everything he has. He takes the money from the sale and goes and buys that field and the treasure that is buried in it. He runs back, digs up the treasure again. Jesus said, coming home to God is as wonderful as finding a treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might even have to give up everything you have to get it. But being where God is, being in his kingdom, that's more important than anything in all the world. It's worth anything you have to give up because God is the real treasure. God has a treasure too, of course. A treasure that was lost long, long ago. So what was God's treasure, his most important thing, the thing that God loved best in all the world? God's treasure is his children. That's why Jesus came into the world, to find God's treasure and to pay the price to win it back. And Jesus did it, even though it cost him everything he had. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good to see you. Welcome to our online audience. Uh, most of our congregation is still worshiping online. I got an email from one of our online uh, worshipers last week that said one of the great things about online is that they've been singing at the top of their lungs in their living room. And so I'm going to hold you to that when you come back. We want to see that. So, One of our most unique sporting events uh, did not begin as a sporting event. On March 6, 2021, uh, over 53 mushers and dogs and sleds will traverse about a thousand miles of snow from near Anchorage to Nome, Alaska. It's called the Great Race, and we know it as Iditarod. The Iditarod had much more serious beginnings. In 1925, uh, diphtheria broke out in Nome, and hundreds of children's lives were at risk. And so they had a serum of vaccination, and they had to get it from Anchorage all the way to Nome. They took the first part of the journey by train, but then they lined up 20 mushers, 150 dogs, spread out strategically throughout the rest of that thousand miles. And they got the serum from Anchorage to Nome in 127 hours, a record, by the way, that still stands today. Hundreds of lives were saved. They called it the great race of mercy. Now, on March 6th, the trek will be similar, and there'll still be dogs and sleds and mushers, but the motivation will be much different. I see in that an analogy for us, for a church, an analogy that goes like this. If we lose sight of our mission being a life-saving mission, then at best, we will become a spectator sport. Welcome to a series of three weeks. We're in week two called Finding Your Story. Jesus has found us, and he's invited us into his story, the great story, the definition of reality, all that's going on in our world. He called this story the kingdom of God. And so in a moment, we're going to take a deep dive into the kingdom of God and see its centrality in Scripture, understand what it means, but most of all, as we've unveiled our new mission statement, you will see that the kingdom is the heart and soul of Waterstone. It's why we exist. In fact, I want to put the mission statement on the screen and just have us read it out loud together to whet our appetites. Let's read to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's us. What I want to do is fulfill a promise I made last week and give you a little background on how we arrived here and uh, as we unveil it to you. And then I, I want to pick up where we left off last week and then dive in to the kingdom. So, um, first, the purpose of a mission statement. Two things. The purpose of a mission statement for an organization is to be the true north, to give the who, the what, and the why explanations. Who are we? What are we doing? And why are we doing it? It's, it's the constant, especially for the leadership, hey, this way. We're going this way. 
This way is where we're going. And that helps the leadership especially to be able to say yes and be able to say no. Because you and I both know there's a million good things that churches can track down. It also in that differentiates us from other churches. That is, helps us to know our place on the playing field. We view other churches, listen, not as competition, but as partners. And each church has a unique calling. Each church has unique ground to take. And what a mission statement does is help each church understand where that ground is and how we can support other churches. And so this is our unique calling, this statement. The other thing it does is gives deep joy. We hope that in the months and years ahead, as you even get tired of hearing this statement again and again and again, there's a squeeze of joy, though, because this is what we're saying we love. And because we love it, I mean, it really matters, and there's significance in that, and that's the joy. So, True North, deep joy, the purpose of a mission statement. Now, this mission statement was a labor of love for over a year. We started September 2019, and uh, our last official meeting with this team was in March. First, I want to put the team up there, so you can just see a cross-section of Waterstone. Uh, these are ages and stages and ethnic diverse people from all across our congregation who spent uh, this time investing uh, in a new mission statement. And our last official meeting was the day in March 2020 that the first COVID case up in the mountains was uh, discovered. <laughs> so then, you know, things changed a little bit as far as our timeline. We had hoped to actually launch our new mission statement spring of 2020. But with COVID, we had other things that we needed to get to first. But now, here we are, and we're so excited to unveil this statement. One more thing I want to do, and that's honor our previous mission statement and generation. Some of you will remember this because you heard it week after week after week. To be a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. We adopted that statement in 2006. So we got 13 years uh, of deep joy and true north from that mission statement. So that's awesome and we want to honor that as well. Last week we unveiled it. And we looked at the first phrase of the mission statement, to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ. And we went to Peter, the apostle in 1 Peter, as he unpacked what exactly that all means. That Jesus, the living stone, the only one who can bring the dead to life, is the one now who's building a new temple, a new spiritual house where people can meet God. And he's forming it not out of bricks and mortar, but out of human lives that he calls living stones. And he's building you and I to be the embodiment, the physical presence, presence of Jesus on the planet in this time. We now are the place where people meet God. We flood the world with his presence. And so Peter says, as the presence, the Holy Spirit living in us, here's what you do. You become a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. That means three big things for us. And here's Waterstone mission. First, worship. Spiritual sacrifices. It's profound encounter with God that is the catalyst to mission. That's why we gather 
to encounter God as we've just done this morning, to see Him as, for instance today, the way, the truth, the life. What does that mean? And then to pour our hearts back out to Him. And in pouring our hearts out to Him, He floods us again with His presence. And we leave, as we will today, being sent back into the world to flood our network of relationship with His presence. We worship to encounter God. Second thing we do is we meet in groups. We always say at Waterstone, you're not really connected to us as family until you're in a group. And we want everyone at Waterstone to be in a group. Why? Because as Peter said, our calling on this mission is to be priests to one another, to get involved in one another's lives so that we practice confession together. We practice giving counsel together. We practice helping people in the worst days of their lives. We form circles of love and prayer around them in small groups. You can sign up to become part of a group for beautiful resistance. You can sign up in our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our young adult ministry. We have groups of all kinds meeting on every night of the week. And our hope is that you're drawn to one of those groups. Why? Not for what you can get, though you'll get good stuff and be transformed, but for what you can give. You are called to be a priest to other believers and help them encounter God. So last thing is prayer. And you may have even noticed in our worship, we're creating more and more and more space for prayer because prayer is faith. Prayer is dependency on God. We need to be a church that prays, that leans on God. And so prayer, I've never been able to get away from the quote by the theologian Walter Wink about prayer. He said that prayer, that history belongs to the intercessors because the intercessors believe the future into the present. That's why we pray. Leaning on the promises of God, we actually articulate the future into the present. Every time we say amen, we are that much closer to the kingdom and its consummation. So we pray. We will be people of worship, people of groups, and people of prayer because we carry the presence of God as living stones, a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ. To do what? All right, that's the next step. To proclaim God's kingdom. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ to proclaim his kingdom. So let's talk about the kingdom, and then let's talk about what it means to proclaim. The kingdom of God is the story. It's the whole story of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's that? Ownership, sovereignty, the right to rule, he owns us. He's in charge. He reigns. And we see it all throughout the scriptures. It goes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a promise of a land, a promise of a seed, an ancestry. And from that ancestry would come the nation of Israel, who would be a light to all nations to show them what God's like. And that covenant is re renewed again and again. In Exodus 19, we see it renewed to Moses as he's leading the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God says to Moses, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. They heard that mission statement from God to be a kingdom of priests. 
And then they sang about it in their worship, Psalm 47, week after week. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. And then God would give dreams and visions about it. And Daniel, for instance, about 600 years before Jesus, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Pause. Now, if you read the Gospels again and again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll see Jesus, when he refers to himself in the third person, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's from right here. This is what he wants you to think, who he is. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he, the Son of Man, approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then 600 years later, we hear Jesus on the ground in a human body, The first words out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark are these. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into his home state, Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Come near. It's a a word out of the orchard, agricultural word, and it means the fruit is ripe. And there's a hand reaching up to pick it. It's now. The fruit is ripe. The kingdom is here. And you have to make up your mind. Repent and believe. You have to make up your mind about who Jesus is. Jesus says, this announcement is good news. That word good news is one word in the Greek. And it's the word euangelon, which from which we get our word evangelical or evangelism. Now, I know that word evangelical, especially as a label, is all mucked up right now, especially politically. But what you need to know is that its root definition is a person who believes the good news about Jesus. And Jesus here is making the announcement. You see this word, euangelon, is from Uh, the Roman culture, whenever Rome would capture another country or win another military battle, they would send riders throughout all the towns and they would proclaim, Roma, victor! Roma, victor! And it would be an announcement of victory. What Jesus is here doing by using the word good news is saying, I am conquering sin and Satan and evil and death. Christus Victor, Christus Victor. Jesus has won. And you and I, we have to make up our minds about him. And you see, that message, Jesus Victor, that Christ is king, is the message of the gospel, the good news. And it's proclaimed all throughout Jesus' ministry. See it with me. In Luke chapter 4, we read this. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. The context here in Luke is he's performed miracles of healing in this town and they're begging him to stay. Stay and heal more and heal more. And Jesus says, if I stay and heal more, guess what? Then we've become a spectator event. 
No, we must go and move forward and proclaim the kingdom to the next town. And we see Jesus doing this. We see a description of his ministry in Matthew 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. And then in Matthew 10, when he sends out his apostles to do a training mission, he says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God has, kingdom of heaven has come near. And we see this to the end of his ministry, to his death, resurrection, and he's about to ascend to the right hand and launch the church and send his spirit. And we see this instruction in Acts 1. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He launches the church. And then what do we see the church doing in Acts? Preaching the kingdom. Philip preaching cross-culturally in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. When, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We see it in Acts 17 with a church in Thessalonica, an ancient Greek city in Greece, the, 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 the town is in an uproar, and they're looking for Paul and Silas. Uh, notice what happens. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, Paul and Silas, have now come here, and Jason, the believer, has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And we see all through the book of Acts to the very last words, the church proclaiming the kingdom. Paul writes, I mean Luke writes about Paul, for two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So you see the centrality of the message of the kingdom and Jesus' ministry, and in the church. It was not only the center, it was the circumference. It was the message. So you might ask, well, okay, Larry, I see it. I mean, yeah, 120 times in the gospel it's mentioned. 90 times on Jesus' lips. I get it. The kingdom of God is the central and important message. But what does it mean? What is the kingdom of God? Let me just start way up here, kind of abstract, but with a very basic definition. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Rule and reign. The kingdom is a sphere, a domain, where what the king says goes. Where what the king wants to happen, happens. It's Dallas Willard, a USC philosophy professor, who's in heaven now, but he said, the kingdom of God is the range of an effective will. So, an effective will. It's like, we hear it in our culture, right? The kingdom of Google. What's that mean? Well, Google rules. In a certain realm, Google rules. We hear it, the kingdom of Elon Musk. If you can understand his memos, you get what he wants. How about the kingdom of Oprah? What Oprah wants and intends will happen in the kingdom of Oprah. We are not unfamiliar with, in fact, 
I would argue that each of you has a kingdom. It may be Tuesday night when you get to choose what's binged. It may get to be when you walk the dog. Here's my kingdom. My kingdom is a 2012 Toyota Corolla. I get to adjust the mirrors and the seat right where I want them. I get to choose the preset stations. I get to choose the Bluetooth. It's my world. And it used to drive me bonkers when I had kids at home who didn't have their own cars yet, and they'd go out driving my car, and they messed it all up. They were enemies of the kingdom. <laughs> we all have kingdoms where what you say goes. So what's God's kingdom? It's vast. His kingdom, his purposes, his character are permeated into all powers, earthly and heavenly, above the earth, below the earth, everywhere. He is king over all time and space and place and past and present and future. His rule is infinitely impressive and influential over all things. Jesus reigns. His rule is also good. It's vast and it's good because in his kingdom, his character is being pushed throughout all that he owns, his values. So in God's kingdom, there's no lying. Why? Because God is truth as we've sung this morning and he's here. And in his kingdom, there's no people using people. Why? Because God is love and he's here. And now, you're totally like, Larry, wake up, dude. Have you watched the news lately? I mean, we had tear gas on the Capitol Plaza last week. Is that what the kingdom of God smells like? We have very sick patients in the hallways of overwhelmed hospitals fighting for their life. Is that what the kingdom of God looks like? We have conversations going on, even in our church, of parents and a teenage daughter so distressed because the daughter is just pushing back against every value and every experience she's ha had at home and wanting to go and live her own life. Is that what the kingdom of God sounds like? I mean, even the faithful have questioned, right? John the Baptist, who actually saw with his own eyes the Spirit of God descend as a dove on Jesus who was standing right in front of him and he heard this voice from heaven, the Father, say, this is my Son, I delight in Him. Months later, John the Baptist, when he did not see armies gathering around Jerusalem to rescue Israel from the Roman oppression, even he began to ask, is this the one who's come or should we expect another? We all live in this tension. Do you know what it's called? The theologians have a great phrase. They say that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. When Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom in a new way in his person, and he secured that kingdom on the cross and disarmed all powers of sin and death. And then his resurrection ratified his kingdom for the world to see that he conquered death 
Jesus said, if there's one casting out demons, the kingdom of God is here. And Jesus showed every day of his earthly ministry what life in heaven is like and that the world's upside down. And yet, there are defiant and radically different kingdoms still in play during this time. There's the kingdom of Satan, the prince and power of the air, the God of this age who's pushing back as hard as he can against everything God wants to do in this world. And then there's other little micro kingdoms still in play. Do you know what they're called? You and me and everyone else who at times still rejects God's kingdom and says, nah, I want what I want. And as a result, Romans 8 says, Creation is groaning. Our bodies are groaning, longing for that day when Jesus will come again and bring his kingdom in fullness and radiant glory and make all things new. You see, we live in this time. It's already here. Jesus launched it, but it's not yet in its fullness. Here's the analogy. It's like D-Day, 1944, British and American troops about to launch the largest ground assault and air assault in the history of human beings. And they, they, at great cost, have to make their way across the beaches of Normandy. Then they have to climb up the cliffs at great cost to human lives. Germans' army shooting at them, target practice. But then a group of them make it to the top, and there's a beachhead established, and there's a communication center established. And as soon as that beachhead sits atop the cliffs of Normandy, the war is essentially over. It's over. It's decided who will win. I'm saying that Jesus Christ on the cross is D-Day. That when he died rose again and disarmed all powers. The war is essentially over. It's decided, no question, who will win. But now, as then, there's still ground to take. There's still decisions to be made. There's still at times battles to be fought until that time when he appears victorious in the air and comes for what is his own, bringing the new heaven and the new earth. Just like D-Day, Jesus on the cross is D-Day. The war is decided, but we're still in the battles. That's the kingdom of God. That's the definition of reality and what's going on in this world. Now, before we talk about what it means to proclaim it, two implications of understanding the kingdom of God. First, there's personal implications. This totally redefines our relationship with God. If Jesus is king and his kingdom is vast and good and it's at work in this world, then the king demands our highest allegiance. Highest allegiance. Our obedience. Our sacrifice. Even to point of death. He's a king. God is not here to serve us. We are here to serve him. Whatever he asks, we will do. Now, I think that's one of the great challenges of being in the American church, is that we get comfortable. We get this idea, oh yeah, I'll give everything to God, but you know, don't mess with my budget. Don't mess with my time. I'm a busy person. 
even though you always have time for what you really want to do. I'm a busy person. And we get, how can I say it? We lose our edge, the edge of the cross. I mean, God forbid that we lose sleep over the kingdom of God. God forbid that we even ask the question when we want to buy new furniture or a new car or a new house, is this the right time? Are there other kingdom priorities at this moment? One of my heroes is a preacher named George Whitfield, a British evangelist who I would argue had the most influence on colonial America and our founding fathers than any other person. He traveled the East Coast at the time from New England to Georgia preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus is Lord, repent and believe. He would preach two to three hours sermons. How I envy that. He would wrap it up. There'd be invitations. There was revival. It was called the Great Awakening. He would hear of people already gathering in the next town. He'd be so exhausted after preaching that they would put him on a horse. They'd find a horse that knew the path well and would slap on the butt and Whitfield, asleep on the horse, would go to the next town, and the Holy Spirit would come, and adrenaline would kick in, and he'd preach another two to three hours, and sometimes three, four times a day. They'd have to lift him off the horse and set him on the platform. What consumes you? What's your passion? Seek first the kingdom of God. It has implications not only as an individual, it has implications as a church. I'm going to say it strong and bold. We are a church that desires to be in the kingdom business, not the church business. What does that mean? Come back next week. <laughs> we'll talk. But let me say it briefly so that I can rattle you a little bit. Come back next week. We are not in the business of building a fun vibrant, crowd-busting church that preaches a shallow gospel that God wants to just move into your life and give you the life you've always wanted. That's not it. We want to be a church that's about the kingdom of God, which means our agenda is huge, which means that we are calling to pick up a cross and give more and more and more of your time, money, and effort until we're done and at home with Jesus. And every week we want to send you out these doors thinking, okay, another hill, let's take it. We don't want God just to be a part of your life. We want Him to be the treasure that you sell everything, everything, to give. So what does it mean to proclaim the kingdom? We argued over this word in that smoke-filled room. Two or three sessions were just on this word. Let me tell you why. Uh, I was pushing pretty hard for it. I wanted there to be a word in the statement that demanded courage. 
Now, with the pushback was, yeah, but proclaim. I mean, you have images of people on the 16th Street Mall holding up signs and yelling at people. That's not it. Well, most days, that's not it. <laughs> I wanted a word that takes guts. What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom? It means to tell people who Jesus is using words. And that is one of the hardest things to do in our growing secular culture. One of the hardest things to do. You and I both know. You bring Jesus into a conversation, say anything about him, you put that relationship at risk, you put your reputation at risk, that conversation might be over. It's hard. Our staff struggles with this. We divided up a few weeks ago. What's the rhythm you most resonate with? Like transform, neighbor, restore. What's the rhythm you least resonate with? Half the staff neighboring. Because it's just hard to have a conversation about G- uh, uh, the shy person's guide to evangelism. Here's what it feels like. Let's pretend that you are someone who might be willing, in theory, at some point, possibly, to consider maybe doing something that, while not evangelism-type evangelism, still could be in some way construed as a sort of sharing of hope, kind of. <laughs> it's a struggle, right? It's the hardest thing to do to tell someone about Jesus using words. Let me quickly say two things and then our plan. First, even though we live in a growing secular culture where there's very little common ground anymore, like between God and sin and the Bible, very little common ground. I mean, one out of five people in America have no religious affiliation. Under 30, one out of three, no religious affiliation. The distance is great. And yet, the latest Barna poll, Elliot Campbell was sharing this with the youth ministry uh, just last week. Latest poll, 49% of Americans still believe certain, with certainty that there are spiritual forces in our world. Another 28% of them believe fairly certain that there are spiritual forces in our world. What, is, what does all that mean? It means that while people are no longer anywhere close to a church, they are more spiritual than ever. 75% of Americans believe there's some sort of something somewhere that's bigger than me. What I'm suggesting is that one of the ways in is through friendship, through uh, you know, developing relationships with other people, and then asking spiritual questions. Like, what faith did you grow up in? Did you grow up in church? I mean, w- w- what do you believe about God? I mean, even that takes guts, yes. But people are more interested than we think to have those conversations. So why are we holding back when we know they need to understand the definition of reality and his name's Jesus? The other thing I'd say to you is that friendship rocks in our culture and people want to have relationship. And so just you with another coworker, another friend saying, well, tell me your story. And then hopefully you get to tell your story. And here's where I think you need to be ready. Here's where I think you need to do some prep. When you tell your story to another person, are you prepared to tell them what part Jesus plays in that? The difference he's made in your life and why you have made up your mind about him. So the goal going forward, next six months, our mission 
is to choose one. One neighbor, one. One person in your sphere of influence, (laughs) your kingdom, who you will have a conversation with where you share your story and what Jesus means to you. What's the motivation? Elsa read it. The motivation is that God has treasured us. And out of the abundance of that love, our hearts full of being treasured by God, He, Jesus, becomes our boast. I mean, when someone has loved you so well, how can you not, not talk about Him? So as we finish the sermon and get ready for one more song, these two questions as we encounter God. Have this conversation with Jesus. First, is Jesus really my king? Is Jesus really my king? Second, am I ready to talk? Have this conversation with Jesus. Why do I hold back? Why am I so shy about him? Put it out there. Am I ready to talk?